So it's my task to discuss the second of the three characteristics, which is uh, the characteristic of dukkha. It's usually translated into English as suffering. And uh, for some people it's the bad news of Buddhism. And it seems like these Buddhists like to emphasize suffering a lot. There's a famous quote from the Buddha where he says, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. I mean, talk about a party pooper, <laughs> if that's all he's talking about. But uh, it's really the kind of the essence or heart of the Buddha Dharma is to really address suffering, but not so we can suffer better, but really so that we can uh, overcome suffering, so that we suffer less and bring suffering to an end. It's kind of the ideal, the, the direction we're heading towards. And um, and uh, I think the hope is that this is a very mature thing to do, to really address, meet oneself, be honest about oneself, and really kind of come to terms with some of the core system, uh, issues that we have in our life so that we can grow up and be free and, and not be caught in the grips of our suffering. And I think of it as a part of the great compassion of the Buddha and the Buddhist tradition is uh, this persistent willingness to point towards suffering and the possibility to resolve it or work with it or go through it. And, um, and I think it's meant to be done with a tremendous amount of uh, respect for every individual. Uh, in that Buddhism is a not a theistic religion, it's called a karmic religion. Um, the, it, it doesn't really have a reference point of something beyond human life. Human life is really held in the high esteem or at the center of kind of the whole, actually the Buddhist cosmology, there's a way in which human life is, has a place right at the center of it. And not in the center, in the, like the center of the circle, you know, and in, not in the center in terms of in charge, but it's uh, the center of a um, hourglass, and um, and we're like the right at the at the this narrow point of the hourglass, and um, of uh, you know there's the huge vast cosmos in all kinds of directions, above us, below us, inside of us. We know there's you know billions of living creatures inside of us, and um, and so. You know, but the, there's something very significant about being a human being that provides the optimal conditions for liberation, for really meeting this life of ours in a deep way. Really, the optimal conditions for uh, maturation, really to mature. And there are, they say, there are heavenly realms and as the hourglass expands outwards up into the heavens. But there, even though it's a lot of really pleasant up there, it's it's kind of like eternal adolescence, and uh, you know maybe it's you were pretty mature when you were adolescent. Uh, remember, you were thirteen or fourteen. You you might have been in the peak period of maturity, but chances are that you've matured quite a bit since then. And you don't want to be forever fourteen. At least some people don't. I wouldn't want that. And uh, and so, th but being a human is considered to be kind of a prime place, and so there's a lot of respect and care, um, and I would say reverence around being a human being, and the teaching of 
not-self is not supposed to diminish us or tell us that we don't count. We really do count. And the whole, the whole Buddhist tradition is built on the notion that you count and you're important and, and your well-being is important. And, um, and, uh, and it's really here to enhance you uh, with your maturation and freedom, not to diminish you and kind of convince you that you don't count, and you know. And, and um, so that's so part of the ideal of Buddhism is that kind of as we mature in practice, we don't use this, we don't t- kind of talk this way so much, but in the West, but traditionally the language is that uh, that of nobility, that as you mature in practice, you increase in nobility. I think it's a kind of a kind of a beautiful thing, the dignity and value of nobility, and and um, so it's in that spirit that you know we're, we kind of look at at uh, our suffering and look it right in the right in the eye and see it for what it is. And part of the reason for that is that we're interested in in Buddhism, at least, is trying to interested in uh, release, not relief. Relief is good, but release is something that has more lasting value. And there's not a few people who come on these kinds of retreats and after the first few retreats get the hang of it, find tremendous value in coming here. But the value, and I, would, I don't want to diminish the value of it, but what I'm about to say, but the value has a lot to do with relief. They are out of the normal life, the tensions of their life, you know, because of the days here drain away. Uh, they feel nur- nourished, they feel like they're in a community, they're supported. And a lot of stuff can kind of, the usual tensions, stresses of life and preoccupations fall away. Um, and it feels like a great relief and it's, it's very inspiring to know that this is possible and know that you're not, that, you know, you're not always caught. But there hasn't been really been the kind of insight into what goes on to provide real release. And so we leave retreat and all the causes and conditions for us to get stressed, to get to suffer, to get caught up, uh, to get hurt, are still there and operating. And so, and some people I know some people have just gone the yo-yo practice, where they come to get relief, and then they go back, come to get relief, they go back. But there's not any wisdom about what's really going on. And so, uh, the idea is to cultivate wisdom, and um, and in that wisdom, begin to mature and grow. And part of that uh, way of talking about wisdom that's very central to our tradition is a phrase, to see things as they are. Seeing things as they are. And we're practicing in order to see things as they are. And, um, and what this kind of a phrase uh, means is um, to see something which is universally true for everyone to see something which is universally true in all our experiences we can have as a human being. And there's something, when you can see something that's universally true, like the common denominator of something, then you have a very different, uh, can have a very different relationship to it. You can be wise about it. Um, and you can be wise everywhere you go. So uh, if you, I don't know, if you, um, Suppose if you're an immigrant to the United States, I'm an immigrant to the United States, uh, came from another country, and uh, I had to take speech therapy class in first grade so I could learn to speak properly. And um, some people wonder if it worked. 
<laughs> but I, I said things like mutter and fodder. And so they told, they taught, they were, I remember the class, they, they were teaching me to say THs. So mother, I had to say mother, father. <laughs> so you, you're an immigrant to this country and, and um, there's a lot of immigrants. It's a, a nation of immigrants. And so you get a sense, wow, there's people from, you know, all over, from Iran and Syria and France and Colombia and Mexico and, and um, you know, there's Native Americans who've been here for a long time and, and uh, you know, Norwegians and there's, you know, so all these different, and they all have their own language. And there's a lot of languages being spoken in this country, lots and lots and lots of them. So if you're an immigrant and you want to speak with people, you know, one solution is to go learn all those languages. And then you've, once you've kind of mastered all of them, the 110 languages, or I don't know how many there are, then you can really get along in the country really well. Uh, so that's one solution. The other solution is to learn the, the common language that everyone shares, or most people share. And, um, and then you can actually get around, you know, you don't have to do so much work. 110 languages takes a while. So you can learn one language. And that's applicable all over, you know. In fact, it's applicable in much of the world because English is a little bit the common language. And um, so the same thing, if you can see something, understand something about reality, about our experience in the world, that's common to all experiences, then it gives you a certain leverage, it gives you a handle on that experience that can bring a lot of, uh, you know, s help you see things as they are. And that, uh, and that common, those com the common denominators that our Buddhist tradition wants to hammer in, really emphasize and say it's so important to see, is um, uh, to see that things are impermanent, to see dukkha or suffering, and to see um, not-self. That those are the three characteristics that are universal, that you can't find anything, any experience, where those aren't somehow present and, in, and if you ignore those, if you're ignorant of, of those three things, then uh, you almost certainly sooner or later end up with frustration and disappointment of some kind or other. Uh, you'll somehow more likely uh, cling, grasp, resist, fight, uh, defend, all kinds of things that kind of come into play when we are not really cognizant of, that, of these three things. And if we really understand these three things, see them clearly as they operate, then uh, there can be a, a lot more courageous acceptance, much more ability to walk through this life with equanimity, with ease, uh, and to be wise. Uh, we don't want to walk th through this world with ease and peace and uh, ignorant and blind to what's going on and not able to respond wisely to the world and take care of ourselves. Um, but how do we take care of ourselves? How do we take care of this world we live in while at the same time uh, not getting agitated, not getting anxious, not getting contracted, or running around like a trapped rat or something? Um, uh, how do we not succumb to the tremendous attractive authority of anxiety? of worry, you know, it can so compelling. Oh, if I, you know, like I, God, you know, you would think that, um, 
worry would ha- really has something going for it. You know, you, in that it's such a common trait. You think it, you know, really, you know, it must be really a good thing, given how many people give give themselves over to it without any question. But it's more often than not, worry is undermines us, and it, and is it does the opposite of maturing us and developing us and growing us. But we want to be able to address and meet the world, and. Um, and so, so learning to see and see things as they are, to see impermanence, suffering, and, and not-self is considered part of this maturation process. And as we've said in this retreat, uh, those insights are supported by their opposites. And part of the characteristics of a mature person, someone who is maturing, we want people to mature in this practice, is to have a certain kind of personal stability, uh, emotional stability, mental stability, an ability to kind of stay upright and balanced in the middle of the, uh, you know, the challenges of our life that we inevitably will go through. And and so to have a certain kind of capacity to stay stable and upright in a good, full way. And a sign of a mature person is someone who has certain kind of well-being, a certain level of, certain kind of wise contentment, satisfaction, someone who's not seduced by some, a lot of the messages about what our society tells us is going to make us happy. Um, the, um, you know, like I can mention some obvious ones, you know, um, I think money, right? I mean, the more money you can have, certainly the happier you can be or the bigger your house. My son went to school in I think first grade, they were teaching them mathematics or something, arithmetic, and they were supposed to go home and count how many doors they had in their house. So, you know, we have, an, in, inside of our house, we have four doors. One of the other students in his class came home, came to class to, tell the class how many doors she counted in her house. 117. (laughs) 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 So, you know, you can have, you know, so big houses, you know, it's like, you know, it's all kinds of things we chase after and we think that's going to do it for us. The lottery. You know, and they've done studies, right, of people who won big wads of money in lottery. And in fact, after they won the lottery, they reported being happier. Isn't that nice? But then when they went back, the researchers went back and studied them a year later, they were more unhappy than they were before they won the lottery. So watch out, you know. So this idea of so maturation is to have some wise idea of what, where the sources of happiness really reside contentment, well-being, and to do the things that nourish that and support that. A mature person is someone who has confidence, maybe even courage, um, but um, a certain uh, strength of self-monitoring, a certain capacity of honesty and integrity. These are all important qualities of maturation. And all these qualities support the movement towards release, 
not relief. We certainly help relief, but, um, but we want to move to a situation where we can really release something that we may be holding on to for a long time and something maybe we don't even, haven't even seen in ourselves yet. And that's part of the nature of m- some of the core attachments, clingings we have, some of the core operating systems. And they're often invisible to us. And, um, and so, you know, we kind of spend a lot of time maybe trying to look at our suffering, trying to understand why we're unhappy. <clears throat> and it can be very hard to do when we can't really s- look under the surface of what, the, you know, really get underneath to the operating system of how it's going. And so it's you know it's, it's all then it's all this speculation and all this guessing and uh, continual reconstruction of our past. You know that they think that memories are not completely accurate <laughs> because uh, memories, to some degree, are are we're telling our story, and you know we're st- human beings are storytellers, and so you know we tell a story one way and a different way and. And, you know, we have different stories. And a couple of months ago, I was talking with my sister about our childhood. And she told one story and I told another story. The same, you know, which one? Really? (laughs) That's what happened? (laughs) And... um, and so, and, and some of some of the kind of working out our suffering through our memories and understanding of what happened in the past is, in fact, a kind of retelling or kind of re- trying to get new perspective on it, new understanding. What happened there? What really happened? And what could have happened? And and it's it's valuable work. I'm not going to say it's not important to do that sometimes, but it is a re- you know sometimes we're trying to understand by telling the story differently and or make plans in the future differently and. And but if it's if it's only a certain level of the inf- certain part of the information, then we can't you know we don't see what's underneath what's going underneath. Some years ago, there was a woman at IMC who had been coming for a long time, and we were fairly close because she was a student and been coming a long long time. And um, and. Um, She regularly uh, would develop friendships with people in the community, and then people then would pull away from her. And some people came and talked to me, and I, you know, they're having trouble, trouble with this woman, and and um, they pull away and pull away. And, and um, I'd known her over some years, and I saw that uh, she could get very angry. She had a kind of bitterness and anger that can. But at the same time, her, uh, her self-image was that this world we live in is a pastoral paradise. Everything is wonderful and nice. Flowers in the hair, and uh, you know, flowers everywhere. And she would have been a great hippie. And. Uh, and so you know, I known her for many years, and she clearly she, there was part of her that was suffering, but she didn't know something about herself. And uh, so at some point, I, um, I you know, after many years of, probably had known her for about fifteen years, and I tend to be as a teacher, receptive, 
not proactive. So I don't like go look for people and tell them. I'm going to wait, and if people come and talk to me, then I'll say something, and and I don't take too much responsibility for people. They they come and talk to me, and I share. But I felt, you know, I probably have a big responsibility for her because, you know, when someone has invested that much time in the community and that much time, um, and I loved her, I cared for her a lot, and and uh, but you know, I felt like I probably should say something, and and I thought about it for quite a while, and this is a big responsibility, and and I thought, you know, this could go if I if I give her some, you know, tell her what I see. Uh, it could be really big. I mean, it could go in the wrong direction in a big way. And I thought, well, after I thought about it, I thought, about it, I thought probably I th my best intuition it was going to be helpful for her. And I felt that uh, given the relationship, given everything, that this was a risk I kind of had to take with her. And so I told her that um, about her anger and how people experienced it. And in fact, as I was afraid, she was devastated. But the devastation only lasted a minute or two. And then she looked up and he said, she said, now I understand. Now it makes sense. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand why everybody was avoiding me and what was happening here. And now I understand. So the idea is we often don't understand something and so, but if we're trying to figure it all out in the area in which we understand it, sometimes it doesn't quite work. Um, it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, the Mullah Nazardine story of looking for his keys under the lamplight, lamppost, right? Do you know the story? So you're looking for this light, you know, looking for his keys, he's lost it and he's under the, the street light. Someone comes along and says, you know, what are you doing? I'm looking for my keys. And where did you where did you lose them? Or I lost them. I lost them in the backyard. But why are you looking for them here? Well, because this is where the light is. <laughs> so sometimes we need to go where it's dark. Sometimes we need to go into the darkness, and this is part of the nature of spiritual paths. All spiritual paths, one way or the other, sooner or later will help us go into the dark, into that which we don't know, that which is difficult. And otherwise, you know, you kind of, otherwise it can be just rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. You know, if you just, that's all you know is the deck chairs. But you have to kind of get in there. And so the maturation of this well-being and stability, confidence in these things, uh, uh, meant to set the ground of self-respect, care, self-care, to be able to be in a place where at some point we can kind of begin seeing more carefully. And one of the things we want to see carefully is dukkha, translated, most often translated into English as suffering. And it might not be the best translation. Uh, there's some people who would like to translate it as um, unsatisfactoriness. Some people will translate it as stress. Uh, I've seen uh, uh, misery, <laughs> um, anguish. Uh, I kind of like suffering because for me, suffering is just a very broad word, umbrella word that covers so many c circumstances and situations. Uh, 
um, where, uh, you know, that so many different things fit underneath them. Uh, but unsatisfactory is a very valuable translation because it points to something that um, the human tendency to want to get some kind of lasting, permanent, or inappropriate satisfaction from certain things in our life. So, for example, if you want um, um, love, respect, deep appreciation from other people, um, you know, uh, and I hope that you're dissatisfied about that the way to do that is to really do really well, really, really well uh, in the gambling halls of Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, that's really where you're going to get all the people's, you know, respect and love. And, you know, that's, that's what will really provide satisfaction. Or you get dissatisfied in the value of drinking alcohol one more time, you know, in order to kind of get relief or get pleasure or something, or take drugs. To be like, oh, this is dissatisfying to keep doing this. Or just feel a certain deep dissatisfaction with wor wor worrying. Some people, they're, you know, they've spent a lifetime of worry or fear, and the track record of how beneficial has been is, you know, success rate has been very low. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, a, a dissatisfaction, a kind of, a kind of a fed upness, and this is this isn't not satisfactory anymore to keep doing this. To, um, you know, there's, there's a whole, you know, you know, you can probably go through, all of you probably have some experience over a lifetime of things that you thought were going to do it for you. This was going to make you happy. And then you feel after a while, you know, this, it doesn't, this doesn't really provide lasting happiness or reliable happiness. It's unreliable to provide lasting well-being, peace, happiness for my life. I love the experience I had in Burma. For those of you who think that, you know, you can put all your eggs in your bank account and that's going to be... I just, it was great to wake up in Burma one morning and, you know, they... Um, and um, the way they printed bills in Burma, they didn't have, back then, they didn't have high denominations so that if you had a lot of cash, you had a lot of sm lot, a lot of bills, and people didn't really trust the government. And there was a black market for changing money, and and so um, people kept a lot of cash at home under the mattress and stuff. And so I was just you know, meditating, minding my own business in the monastery, and <clears throat> woke up one morning, and it was announced that um, all the paper bills in Burma were no longer valid. I mean, I, I was kind of stunned. I mean, I thought, you know, currency was just like God we trust, you know. <laughs> I, I, th I mean, I thought that you could, you could, I mean, you, I, there's a lot of things I couldn't count on, but currency, I mean, th that was, I mean, I never, I, mean, I just assumed. So that you just wake up in the morning and... It was kind of, that was a kind of wake-up call of a certain kind. Or some people learn that they can't count on their health. It's, and some people don't even realize how much they're relying on health and physical well-being for their happiness and well-being until something uh, goes awry with it. 
And uh, not a few people have had serious physical limitations with health or something else and have struggled with it and been depressed and been upset. And then at some point, seeing the light, seeing the other side of it and, and grateful for what has happened. Um, and uh, because they didn't realize how many things they were attached to and held on to and, and personal self-identity and, and how much they had invested into looking good or being something. And, uh, and it was all kind of a facade or kind of not a really reliable happiness and well-being. And they could only see that when it was taken away. And so they kind of got liberated from a certain kind of thing. And uh, so some people find that experience happens to them. There's a book called Far From the Tree, a great book of a bestseller who came out a few years ago, and that this man studied, uh, mostly studied children who were born far from the tree of their parents, who were very different from their parents because the first chapter is um, because they were gay, they are gay, and the author is gay, so he was kind of very personal. But he went through each chapter, studies different kinds of uh, of children who are far from the tree, very different from their parents. And uh, very careful study, interviews a lot of people, researches it, and fascinating. And, um, and but one of the conclusions he came to in that, that I mean, the conclusion is a gen- generalization. You know, it can't, it's not, certainly not true well, everywhere, but as a generalization. So he studied uh, uh, kids who were prodigies, you know, had some great ability. And he also studied lots of kids, or different chapters, for children who had uh, various real deep challenges. Uh, blind, autism, uh, you know, just you know, all kinds of the kind of things where uh, very severe mentally compromised minds and physical, severe physical disabilities and, you know, and, um, and one of the conclusions is that the parents of prodigies tended to become worse over time as people. And that and the, ch- the parents of children who had these kinds of real disabilities tended to become better people over time. And because of the, the idea is if, if you have this prodigy, it's all about the prodigy and my kid and getting the head and getting the best for them. and. And the world gets kind of narrow that way, and you know, and kind of getting ahead. Whereas people who, whose lives, you know, the parents' lives are radically turned upside down when you have a, you know, a child who's very, very challenged, needs a lot of attention and care, and the parents have to give up so much and sacrifice a lot, and and you know, they're not living anymore a conventional life and the life of maybe of a conv- some of the things that they were expecting to their life was going to be about. And somehow in the care and the compassion letting go that they have to do, they grew as people, they matured. So, dukkha means uh, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness of some of the things that we invest ourselves in. And I think part of the uh, maturation process is to begin to be wiser about what is really a reliable source of well-being and happiness and what is not. And th- th- some of that uh, develops and grows over a lifetime because we kind of life experience, we grow, we mature, we have experiences, we see things, we have disappointments. And so slowly we kind of g- 
get oriented, and um, and we see what's reliable, what isn't, and and we don't invest so much in certain things. Maybe we invested in when we were young. When I was 13, I invested a lot of time and attention uh, uh, around a particular thing that was going to really was really important for my well-being, for my happiness, for my friendships, for my place in the world, and. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty important to, and that was the length of my hair. You know, and I would sit in class pulling my hair to make it longer, and because it was, you know, 1967, and then those of you who are old enough to know, that was like the heyday of men growing their hair long. I can tell you now that I, I no longer hold much store in, <laughs> in length of my hair. I don't have a lot of investment. I don't think it's that important. I don't, my happiness is not dependent on it. So, you know, I've matured a little bit. <laughs> so this uh, part of dukkha is this unreliability. And so how do we look into, how do we look straight at reality, really see our life? So we can really begin teasing this apart and get become wise about these things and be able to separate ourselves from some of the, trem- the tremendous uh, authority of the messages we get from our society about what's important, what we need to do. And what are we looking for? Like in relationship to other people, a lot of our suffering is interrelational. So what do we invest in the relationships? What are we expecting in other people? What are we trying to do to, well, for, for a long time, uh, what I thought was reliable and for my, suffer, my, for my happiness and well-being, or, to, or at least not to suffer, was to have everyone like me. And um, it's a nice thing, it's a reasonable thing to want people to like you. I, I think everyone should have a little bit of that, you know, concern. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a nice thing, you know, to have, you know, to have people's respect and, you know, to people like, but boy, I suffered. And I can tell you, uh, I don't know if it's true, but uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, the expectation that you're going to get everyone to like you is hopeless. <laughs> and if you're trying every possible situation you are in, every social situation you're in, to do the social gymnastics to get people to like you, you're going to suffer for a long time. And I only kind of woke up to this because how much I tried to do the social gymnastics and how much I was trying to get people to like me and how and how much what a strain that was on me and when I finally saw the strain at some point I kind of like this is not worth it so it was the wisdom that came from exhaustion and uh, and then slowly I learned to kind of loosen up around that and be freer and freer from it so, you know, it's not reliable to get everyone to like us. Or it's not reliable to get everyone to see us in the way we want them to see us. It's not reliable, you know, so, to always present ourselves to be the person that we think we're supposed to be, you know, and put on a persona. And so, you know, this, so it's a reliability. And so in the Buddhist tradition, we talk about what is it that's reliable for lasting happiness and well-being. And some things do, in fact, bring happiness in the short term. And there's no way that we need to knock them and to 
and to not celebrate them and enjoy them when there's short-term happiness. But even things which have short-term happiness, if we hold on to them or expect them to be there forever, that can be a lot of suffering. So I, um, you know, so there's, there's sometimes, uh, you know, the happiness of having children. And then children grow up. How dare they? Or, you know, can't they do it sooner? You know, it's a different thing. <laughs> and then, you know, those of us who are schizophrenic have both. <laughs> sooner, but not yet. And, um, but you know, and so then they leave. But if there's too much, you know, you know, there can be too much invested in those relationships. And so we have to shift and change what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a child and, and find a different way. And, but if we expect it always, you know, it was a certain kind of happiness when they were there as children, but if we expect that happiness again, there, that relationship again, then we'll suffer. And so how does it shift and change and how do we work with the changes? is part of the wisdom and of life. and So it's expected always one way is, is suffering. And I, I kind of like the word suffering, though, to translate dukkha. And then maybe because I've just been around Buddhism so long and I just got used to it. Um, be, but I, because I, I like it that there's a connection between suffering and attachment, suffering and clinging. <coughs> suffering and craving. <coughs> and somehow that to say there's a connection between unsatisfactoriness and craving is kind of like a couple of steps process, but suffering, good old-fashioned suffering. And so, so part of what we do in practice is to be willing to look directly at our suffering. And I think it's a very mature thing to do, courageous thing to do, to be willing to stop and sit still and be quiet and really be willing, be willing to suffer. That is a great thing to do. It's painful, it's difficult, it takes courage, it's not comfortable. But somebody in this world of ours needs to have the ability to stop and really look and really experience and be with suffering in a deep way so it can be seen right down to the core of what it's about. There, are, it's all too, not too many people have this ability. The, the human instinct is to do anything but stop and be present for it. And probably each of you have your kind of default dysfunctional relationship to suffering. Mine is uh, I have the ostrich strategy. So, and I really kind of get, you know, there's a lot, oh, just too much, you know, suffering. And so uh, my thing is to get really quiet, pull in, and kind of disappear. So if you ever see me like, you know, just get really quiet and not talk, you know. And then um, you, you, you kind of will do me a favor and say, Gil, what's going on? <laughs> Don't just leave me like <laughs> being an ostrich. And, um, uh, you know, that's my thing. Uh, other people I know have the, um, someone else is responsible. Someone else is to blame. Let me find someone to blame. You know, and so the, you know, let's attack. You know, if I'm suffering, it means someone else is going to get it. That's, an, you know, it's a strategy. And then uh, there's a strategy of, maybe not quite like the ostriches, this running away strategy. There's the substitution strategy. 
you know, if I'm suffering, well, I'm going to do something different so I don't have to notice. Like Charlie Brown said that his, you know, maybe I've told this before, but Charlie was talking to Linus. And Charlie says, oh, so you don't think my father knows how to repair a car? Just the other day, there was, uh, we were driving along and there's all this loud clanging that came from the engine. So Linus says, oh, don't tell me he stopped and fixed it. No, he turned up the radio. (laughs) So sometimes we substitute, right? And that's a strategy to avoid at all costs. And the last strategy that is worth mentioning is the self-deprecating strategy. I'm suffering, therefore I am somehow wrong. I'm a failure as a human being. That it's a personal failure that I'm suffering. And it's an embarrassment. And I better not let anybody know because if people know that I'm suffering, they'll know that I failed Humanity 101. So one of the great things I think about the Buddha Dharma is, is in fact, the way it kind of brings out suffering into the open, say, yes, human beings suffer. And in fact, it's such a common element of human life that we could almost see it as impersonal. It just comes with being human. And I say almost because many times our suffering has a very personal side to it particular things happen to us as children or as grown-ups and we can trace it to particular events. It happened to me, it didn't happen to you. And, um, and we can recognize the patterns inside of ourselves. It's my pattern, it's, you know, we can see these things. So it's kind of maybe easy to take too much responsibility. It's me, me, me. And to add to this, I'm, I'm doing something, I'm a failure. And, and then you, you have the, the cause and conditions to encounter Buddhism and the Buddhists say that you're suffering because you're clinging. So again, you are responsible and, and you just like put more salt in the wound, just more proof that you're a bad person. And, and you were bad enough before, but now you're a bad Buddhist. <laughs> you know, it's just, and, um, but it's, you know, I think it's helpful to not take it personally. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a part and parcel of human life. It's kind of so common and the, and the very uh, um, conditions inside of us that cause us to suffer, to bring us suffering, are just, we're born with those conditions. We're born with those operating systems. We're born with those needs that get somehow trampled on and challenged. And it's kind of like it's just what, it, what it means to be a human being. It doesn't, and it's, it's really helpful not to take it too personally. You know, and just to take it as being part of the human condition. Welcome to humanity. And it's a, a very profound thing to see it this way because um, uh, then, you can sh- then you're sharing our human condition with others. To just see it, to just me and I'm suffering and I'm the, wor- the worst person here and I'm the failure and whatever. It's kind of like then you're special. <laughs> and then in your specialness you can't really have empathy for others and really understand how much we're all in it together and sharing. And, but if you stop taking your suffering so personally, then it opens you up, and you're part of, um, you know, you're part of our shared humanity, and and you're supported, and you support others, and you, and it's all part of it. So we stop and we look at suffering, and we look carefully at it. And one of the things, one of the ways to stop and look at suffering, is to try to look at it and be with it 
without all the extra baggage, without the default mechanisms and being for and against it. And this is part of the value of mindfulness and meditation practice, is learn how to <clears throat> suffer and be still. And to be not still is to be agitated. To be not still is to be for and against, to be analyzing, running around, trying to figure out, trying to make it better, trying to fix, trying to run away, trying to justify, trying to do-do-do-do, right? But just take a deep breath, exhale, and sit quietly in the middle of the suffering. And sometimes if you can do that, a lot of the extra stuff falls away. The extra stuff, for example, like the second arrow, it's just, rather than, you know, the second arrow means you suffer, but then you attack yourself for suffering, or you say you're bad because you're suffering, or you, or you, you know, you add all this extra stuff. What we're looking for in practice is we're looking for simple suffering. We're looking for the pristine simplicity of our suffering, meaning we don't add anything. We don't explain. We don't try it a lot. Just be still. And it, you, it's a little bit easier if you have a loving stillness, kind stillness. You don't necessarily understand it. You don't necessarily know the way out. But you don't have to know. You don't have to be the person who solves it. You don't have to justify, you don't have to explain, you don't have to, just sit still and let it show itself to you. Be still and let what hasn't been known, let, let what hasn't been seen be seen. Let what hasn't been heard finally be heard. What hasn't been sensed finally be sensed. Just keep breathing and as you exhale, sit stiller and stiller in the midst of it and let it come and show itself. Some of the deepest suffering we have, or some of the deepest, the source, the clinging, the attachment, that really is at the, the core attachment of our life, the core clingings, and like the deepest roots of it. I like to think of it as being very shy, very quiet and very shy. And it's not going to show itself to you, because maybe it's a little bit afraid or intimidated or or just kind of very shy. And so you have to get very quiet and still and maybe not address it directly. Just be just, you know, very quiet and listen. Listen. What is there? And what is it that in deep inside that could be met with your care, your compassion, with wisdom, the wisdom that that it's wise to meet this and see it it's maturing and what is it that uh, what is it that's deep inside that um, that's shy that has maybe never been seen never been heard that um, needs your respect needs your care and needs needs its time needs its time just to be and the deeper we go in practice, the stiller we get. The things that we encounter, the more important it is to do nothing. To do nothing whatsoever. Do less and less. 
to less and less. So the wisdom of unsatisfactoriness is the wisdom we can take with us in all kinds of ways. We understand how things are unsatisfactory. They're unsatisfactory for building up a permanent sense of self, a permanent identity. That, that this is going to be the lasting thing that's going to be, this thing is going to make me happy forever. There's happiness to be found in not holding on to anything. If I think that holding something is what's going to make me happy, and I realize that bell striker is not going to make me happy, that's I'm wise enough to know that, but it's the holding on to things. So I just go to grab the next thing, or the next thing, <laughs> you know. And I never learn what it feels like to have an open, relaxed hand. That open hand is happy. The open, relaxed heart is happy. And if we're always trying to hold on to something, we won't discover that happiness. And um, so to begin to let go and discover this happiness that comes from not anything, to stop having happiness in things, in experiences. And people who do Buddhist practice are sometimes a little bit too addicted to having meditation experiences. It's the freedom from experiences, the open hand, the open heart, the open mind. So to begin to understand that things are unsatisfactory, that a thing, an experience, not hold on to those, but in that freedom in the release. And then to begin understanding, to stay still for suffering when we do suffer and, and offer it our care, our respect, our courage, our willingness to look at it, to be with it. Um, and to begin kind of figuring out how to drop, how to step away from the usual ways in which our mind functions. So we step away from analyzing and thinking about it, remembering it, planning around it, but actually learn how, the art, to learn how to get quieter with it, stiller. Take a deep breath and get quieter. I'm suffering, okay, I'm suffering, so this is the time to get quiet. Because chances are, a lot of our suffering is happens in direct proportion to how much we think. The more we think, the more we suffer. The less we think, the less we suffer. The more we think, the less we can see clearly. The less we think, the more we can see clearly. Thinking is great. I love thinking, by the way. So I'm not going to, you know, this is not, you know, those of you who are thinkers, you have my respect. But it's overrated. Thinking is overrated. So the more we think, more likely the more you fuel your suffering. The less you think, the more you can start seeing deeper and deeper in what's going on. And the more you can see in this quiet place, the more you can see with respect and love. And the chances are the, the roots of your suffering inside, the deeper roots of them, that thing inside of you that's the source of kind of much of your angst and 
the stress and fear and anger and things like that is something that needs the kind of needs to be seen <coughs> with eyes of compassion, eyes of love, eyes of respect, eyes of letting it be, not being against it, not being f attacking it, not trying to fix it, not trying to oh my suffering I'm clinging and I gotta get that clinging and yank it out there and throw it away and stomp on it, be done with it once and for all. It's more like just be with it. Because at least in this meditation path, chances are that more of your suffering, the most of your suffering will not be solved. You will not solve your suffering. But it will dissolve. So once your suffering will dissolve, it won't be solved. And so if you're, and that's part of the dead ends, is to always trying to solve it. So to sit still, get quiet. And if you have the support of these three trainings, stability, well-being, and confidence, then it becomes easier to sit still, upright, and offer the kind of silent care, respect for what's deep inside. So what's there? We'll do what it's going to do. Let it do what it's, what it's going to do. But chances are that your suffering in that place your suffering will take care of itself. It will dissolve. So then to take that transition back into the kind of the retreat mode, if you just want to close your eyes as you're sitting here, Taking a deep breath, and as you exhale, settling into stability. Taking a deep breath, and as you exhale, settle into whatever sense of well-being you might find.
and taking a deep breath. And as you exhale, settling into confidence. <laughs>